This is the current federal tax developments for the week of September the 6th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and talking to you this week as we're coming here the first week, first full week, I should say, in September, to look at what's happened this week. And this week, actually, the main things that have been happening have been happening involving AICPA activities uh, related to comments on various tax issues or the issuance of proposed new standards. So we'll talk a little bit about each one of those. So the first thing I want to talk about this week will be the AICPA's issuance of proposed revisions to the statements on standards for tax services. They've been talking about doing this for a while. Now they have an exposure draft out there. We'll talk about what's in it, why it appears to be done, what they're doing, as well as their separate request for comments regarding a tax practice quality control set of standards. So we'll talk about that. That that set of standards is not in this particular situation, this particular exposure draft. It would take a whole nother exposure draft, but they are asking for some comments in that area. We also have the Tax Executive Committee requesting additional guidance from the IRS for dealing with schedules K2 and K3. Now, officially, they're asking for this for 2021 and later returns. Obviously, we're just about to run out of time entirely for 2021 partnership returns that are calendar year. Uh, If we have fiscal year ones, then yeah, that still would impact them. So yeah, we still have a few of those coming, I suppose. But obviously, for most of us, this is looking at the 2022 calendar year returns and how they would be impacted by K2, K3, because we still don't really have much except for the guidance IRS put out at the beginning of the year, the original instructions, and then their patches to those instructions, and then their FAQ that gave some additional relief. And the AICPA has some ideas about what they should change. And also, you probably need to make some of that temporary relief guidance permanent. At least that's the AICPA's discussion. And then we have letters from both the AICPA and the National Association of Enrolled Agents that are asking for additional time to deal with the penalty relief the IRS put in in those 2022-36. Remember, for 2019 and 2020 returns, now we have both organizations asking for the IRS to move that date back from September 30. Both organizations will point out that uh, tax professionals have a few things happening in that time frame. And, you know, trying to argue for you can't really put another deadline in that time period. And why don't we push it back? Uh, the AICPA asks for it to be pushed back to the end of the year. The NAEA is asking for it to be pushed back to, to November 30th. Uh, we'll see if they do either of the above, but still, both organizations now, within a couple of days of each other, wrote and asked for that kind of uh, information or that kind of relief to be put together. So let's start out here with the AICPA's Statements on Standards for Tax Services, an Exposure Draft and Invitation to Comment, issued on August the 29th, 2022. Now, for those who are not aware, the Statements on Standards for Tax Services were made formal, as I recall, formally enforceable, back in about, I think it was the end of the 90s, that they became enforceable. Prior to that, they'd been uh, basically, uh, or sort of standards that were advisory, but in reality, CPAs would be held to them in litigation 
and a number of state boards would also reference them if there was ever an accusation the CPA had not properly performed a tax engagement. So they made them enforceable back then, and they really ju just took the uh, old uh, statements and just didn't really change them much. There would have been a couple of modifications since they first came out, but nothing major. This is going to be a relatively major set of changes. And what's going to be involved in this, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to have a proposed reorganization of the standards. So the key issue here is that we're going to reorganize the statements. So a lot of what's going on here is not issuing new. There's three pieces of new guidance, or what's effectively would have been under the old ways they structured this, there would have been three new statements. As it actually turns out, there is only one full statement among the changes, or what they will call a statement now. We'll talk about why that's the case. And then two others that are insertions into uh, the first standard, or the new first standard. So we'll talk about that, what they're doing. But the main thing we're trying to do here is just simply reorganize it more in a standard where if you're doing a certain type of project, we'll know where to go look, where in the standard you would find guidance for this. So what they're planning to do, and they actually have a, a mapping, just kind of like what they did with the ethics, when they reorganized ethics into areas, those that affect public accounting, those that affect CPAs and industry, and those that affect other CPAs in a general background area. We're going to have much the same here. The standard number one will now include general tax guidance with broad applicability. Now that is where two new set of guidance, and that'll be on data protection and reliance on tools, ends up going. We'll talk about what those mean. Standard number two is for tax preparation guidance. Very much that's going to contain a lot of what used to be in the statements and standards for tax services number three. Uh, and there are some other items and some of the other standards that would go in there. But that's if you're doing compliance work is SSTS number two would apply, along with obviously number one, number one and number two apply. Number one is general tax issues. Number two is compliance related standards. Standard number three would be guidance specific to providing tax advice and tax consulting. And standard number four is the new one that would have guidance for members providing tax representation standards. That would be a brand new standard in the mix. As I said, the primary goal here was to reorganize the standards so that we you know, had things in a more, let's say, it was easier to find your, where you're looking. Under the old method, it was much more like we used to have with FASB, where you had all of these you know, statements on, we had all these FASB standards, the FASB was come out, so you'd have the various numbers, and, you know, and you'd have to take each statement and look through the statements. And if a statement modified a prior one, you had to know that you had to look at that statement, then realize there was a later one that modified it. So they've gone to more of a codification system where we're just going to have a codified segment because we've done that now with not only the ethics, which was effectively moved into that method, but also we saw it with the SARS uh, for statements on standards for accounting review services. We saw it with the auditing standards that were moved into that method. And obviously FASB itself moved into that method that we have now. So this will move those away from the set of statements structures, even though we'll still call things statements. Again, we're tax people. We don't like, you know, we, we have enough change, so we don't want to change what we refer to them by. But they'll just be standard number one, standard number two, standard number three, standard number four. 
and then in theory future changes will simply insert things into there when we get there. Now the first new thing they're going to be looking at here will be a proposed standard on data protection. And this will be proposed section 1.3. So it's be part of the statements on standards for tax services number one, the general standard, but it will talk about data protection. And the IRS felt, or I should say the ASCP felt that this is something, first thing is the IRS has been very interested in it. Uh, second thing, it's become major league deal in the press. We see a lot of states and we see the feds involved in data protection issues. So AICPA feels that at this point, and we do have some standards even in the ethics standards that talk about a CPA's requirements dealing with certain uh, keeping things confidential, which really comes into data protection too. So they just kind of decided we're going to have a specific one to discuss the tax issues of this, reminding you that other standards may still apply in this area, right? In this case, we've, what we're doing is we're creating more and more data now is no longer in hard copy format. When I first got started in practice, you know, you would probably take documents that you wanted to keep in your files, you would photocopy them, and you would put them in the file. Now, those really only if somebody broke in your office and, you know, got into your file room and began, you know, rifling through your files, could they actually find that stuff. What's happened now is that more and more of us, you know, I think virtually everybody at this point is using a paperless system where we scan these documents and we keep them online because it is way more efficient, way more practical for long term. It doesn't consume all the space that the paper does. So there's lots of reasons why we did it. But the one problem we have here is that when it sits on our servers, if our servers are breached, and they can most often be breached, they can be breached from outside the organization because most of us have our systems now in our networks connected to the internet. So it's become a bigger issue now to be able to take a look at this sort of limitations on data, data protection. So we're gonna have two standards, we're gonna have two statements here that have basically a proposed standard. And they, they're coming two sentences. 1.3.4 says a member should make reasonable efforts to safeguard taxpayer data, including data transmitted or stored electronically. And 1.3.5, because th this is a different topic. Find it interesting how people confuse the two and think they're the same. They're not really the same. A member should consider applicable privacy laws when collecting and storing taxpayer data. Privacy and security are two different issues. Now, you know, obviously security of data and privacy of data, obviously, yes, for, from a privacy standpoint, it's bad if you have privacy, if you have data that's kicked out to the outside world, that shouldn't be, yeah, that's kind of a privacy problem, I admit, but it's also a privacy problem if you're keeping or using certain types of data that you shouldn't be doing, and that's also a problem. Now, it's really important to note in the standard and the discussion of this, because how these are structured is we get the basic standards, and then we get explanations that kind of put the meat on the bones for what the standards really mean. They make it very clear that the term reasonable efforts there to safeguard data is meant to indicate that there's not a one-size-fits-all fit all situations here. Technology is changing. What could have been reasonable steps to safeguard client data, you know, 10 years ago may not be reasonable today. What was reasonable prior to 
widespread use of the internet in the mid-90s, you know, it was a very different world controlling if you had electronic data, which we tend to have much less of there because we didn't have the storage to image all the stuff and store it on servers. But there you were looking mainly at physical access. Obviously, as the internet's gone, we're switching back over to, you know, having it with internet access to the networks. And as we've seen moves to cell phones, tablets, and other things that are highly portable, you also have the problem of your data sneaking out of the office via those mechanisms. We, we have to realize that these are probably going to continue, we're going to continue to develop methods that are going to raise privacy or privacy and security issues going forward as we have new structures. First thing they remind you at 1.3.7 is that you're going to need appropriate safeguards to protect both member and taxpayer data stored within your information systems. The safeguards should be based on current, current recommended practices may include various other items. You should consider the AICPA's privacy management framework and trust services criteria when developing a privacy program. And, you know, they talk about the various things you might use, secure networks, password policies, firewalls, secure sharing collaboration platforms. They also remind us here at 1.3.8, which I think really is important, that most CPAs use third-party electronic tools, right? These tools are owned and hosted by others. And even you, even some of you are saying, no, 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 we don't do any of that. We're staying away from this whole cloud thing. We don't do any of that stuff. And my next question is, how do you get your returns electronically filed? And I'm going to find that you know, firms who swear they don't do anything in the cloud are still working with their vendor, be it Thomson Reuters, be it CCH, uh, be it Intuit, and they're shipping the electronic filing data through those entities in order to get that data to the IRS and taxing agencies. Well, this reminds us that we do have a responsibility to confirm that the information is, you know, is appropriate, is properly shared and that we have to have, you know, that these things are taken care of. We have some responsibility there for making sure that CCH or Thomson Reuters, etc., are not, you know, in essence, putting our clients' data at risk. That's a key issue. They also recommend at 1.3.9 that you should consider the types of data you're storing on your system. In essence, sometimes we've got, because it's easy to scan something, it's easy to store it on a server, and we have lots of space, and we have lots of room. I mean, I don't know about your servers right now, but my servers, I'm not at any risk of running out of space anytime soon. So in one sense, it's very easy to keep data. But remember, there's a risk there. Every piece of data you keep is a piece of data that could be leaked in a, you know, in a breach of the system. So the question becomes, you should be very careful about, you know, what you store and potentially redacting information not necessary. So they may say, you know, be especially be concerned about personally identifiable information, names, addresses, um, social security numbers, account numbers, that sort of stuff that you have, or personal health information, you know, related to somebody's health conditions, etc. You know, we may need document retention and destruction policies also are recommended here. Again, the theory being, if the data is not there, it can't be part of a breach. So be aware of that. They're going to deal with that. Uh, you also are told that you need to consider what you would do in the case of a data breach, the steps you'd have to take. You also need to consider applicable privacy laws that are out there. They talk about Glam, Leach, Bliley. Uh, specifically, the Financial Services Modernation, Modernization Act, which is what you refer to as Graham Leach Bliley. We also have some safeguard rules to implement that from the FTC that you should be up to speed on. 
You know, we also have certain security expectations of taxing authorities. The IRS has been publishing a lot of data about what a tax practitioner should have, including a written security policy. So you should be aware of that. And finally, it says all of this is not really very helpful if you don't train your staff. So there would also be a requirement, you know, there to essentially one of the, one of the issues would be that you need to seriously consider that none of this security bit's going to work if nobody's trained on the stuff and they're not using it. So you have to be aware of that. Okay. The next thing the AICPA does is develops a standard that at first seems a little weird. It's called the tool standard. Now, what tools means really, okay, and the AICPA defines this, a tool is a research used in the provision of tax services. And they'll say it includes, but not limited to, tax preparation software, tax research publications, be they paper or, or electronic, tax-related uh, calculation aids, like, you know, maybe, you know, the in essence, the Bloomberg tax spreadsheet, income tax spreadsheet for projecting tax times. Uh, that's planning software, state and local tax aids, online data search engines, data analytics, statistical models, artificial intelligence, and relevant professional publications and resources. So the concept here is what is the CPA's requirements with regard to tools? And generally the standard said that a member should exercise appropriate professional judgment and professional care when relying on a tool, but also says a taxpayer may reasonably rely on tools used in providing tax services to a taxpayer, but the use of the tool does not absolve the member or his or her of his or her professional obligations under the AICPA or other applicable ethical standards. Now, they go on, they talk about, you know, the fact that these tools are, in fact, it's the best practice to have tools you use. I think most of us do, right? We have research services that we have. Uh, we have various things. We may use various other things, some of which are formal, some of which are informal. You know, a lot of the tools that I use, you know, I, I use formal tools. I use research publications. I use the IRS. I use publications from the taxing agencies that I access via the Internet. And I'll be honest, I, I use tax Twitter, uh, you know, and but the catch here is you have to understand how to responsibly make use of that. They do note that the source of the tools should be considered when determining appropriate reliance. I don't, part of this I don't like because they give a for example that I think I understand where they're going here, right? For instance, subscription-based tax research tools and resources may have more weight than opinion articles from independent internet sources. Well, you always have to love that, you know, weasel word may have. So obviously they're saying, I mean, I, I agree that, that blindly running a search term through Google and trusting every article you get, probably not the best way to go about doing your research. However, do I use Google in my research quite often? Yes, all the time. Do I use Twitter in my research? Yes, all the time. Do I use that to keep on the, up on the news? Yes, all the time. But you have to understand that you have to vet your sources. I think that's the key here. My problem is that, that this will probably lead to knee-jerk reactions of just, we don't want to see anything in the file that, that said we got something from anything but our research service. And since most accountants really don't know how to use their research service, I'm afraid if you actually went down this path, you're going to make things worse, not better. So talk about that. I understand where they're going. I don't like that, though, but that, that, that's my own issue here. As I said, I do think it is important to know the limitations of any tool. And so beyond simply saying that, that the source of the tools must be considered, I would say the source and how recently they were updated. 
is crucial. I think especially in tax, you need to know if you're reading a document. For instance, the example I'd use, if you've got in front of you a printed copy of, you know, let's say the U.S. Master Tax Guide from CCH. Well, you know that was published in January, and it's not going to help you deal with the Inflation Reduction Act, things that were passed. If you read in what's in that guide and you're looking at, you're looking up, oh, is energy credit going to work this year, you know, for putting things on my house, you're going to come up with the answer of no. That'll be a wrong answer. Why? Because the date that was published, that was the correct answer. But since that was published many months ago, you have to update your knowledge and keep up with that. So I, I think there's far more than source has to be considered when you're vetting your, when you're vetting you know, where you're getting your stuff. And I'm, I'm just a little concerned that that standard seems to, you know, will lead people to a quick knee-jerk set of rules in a firm that I think will probably get firms in trouble, not, not really solve the problem because they'll be relying on outdated information because outdated information has got to be way better than anything on the internet and bottom line, not true. If I've got a published U.S. tax court decision that comes down on Tuesday, uh, from the United States Tax Court. It's on their website. That is as good inf information as you can get, period. It is better than anything your tax software service will give you, uh, except for the fact they will eventually publish that word for word on their site. And I do say eventually. Uh, most are pretty good these days. The major services, 24 hours. But again, some services will take much longer and some services will just only give a summary. You know, if you're relying on something from, let's say, the federal tax coordinator, yeah, unless you go look at the source materials, you're going to probably read a two-paragraph summary. That two-paragraph summary will always be less useful than the entire case because you, there's a reason why the case goes on for 20 pages and this summary is two paragraphs. You have to edit out stuff. So I think understanding your tool to me is way more important. I'm a little concerned with how they worded that. Uh, you know, they do remind you in proposed section 1.4.7 that you do remain responsible for the completed work product. And they say you have to take reasonable steps to, ver to satisfy yourself that the results presented are reliable. You should confirm the calculation of taxable income and tax liability for a tax return that's completed using software. You shouldn't just put numbers in the software and presume it did it right. You should have a way of confirming that what actually got computed there is correct. And also make sure that whatever it does meets the standard of tax return positions found in Section 2.1 now of the proposed regs, uh, cur currently in SSTS number one. And those are very true. And I think that is a problem we've seen in many cases where people just rely on the tax software to handle all computations and positions and don't have any idea, you know, and you'll get a question about, well, why, you know, I don't know, you know, what happened, you know. Those sorts of things or don't understand what's there. It's like, what should have happened with this data? Not, not what your tax software did, but what should have happened and understanding that so you can properly understand using the tools. They also remind us in 1.4.8 that tools should be used to enhance or improve your understandings of tax issue, but not to, supplant, not, not to supplant your judgment. You can't just simply say whatever the software says must be right. And I think that's going to be especially true in larger firms where you're looking at using like, you know, artificial intelligence systems, which can be really helpful. But ultimately, if you're using that, you're still responsible for its answer.
right? You got to make sure the answer is right. And again, that's why I really don't like the fact that they treat this as just where the source came from and that's reliability. Uh, reliability depends on a whole lot of other things, but otherwise, there's your standard. We also have a proposed standard on tax representation services. This would be a brand new statement on standards for tax services number four. And what this does is kind of remind you that, you know, you may need to actually be dealing with more data. A lot of what this talks about is doing tax representation work goes beyond the first three standards, you know, especially standard one, standard two, and standard three. We'll talk about your technical tax knowledge. What is the proper taxation of a distribution from a partnership? And you know, you're going to look at basis, other issues. You got to make sure that debt's been allocated properly so we have the proper basis. All that's technical tax knowledge. And a lot of your CP courses, as I mentioned, is going to cover that in detail. But just knowing the topic the exam's about is not good enough. You have to know tax practice information. So this particular standard makes it very clear that you need to ensure that you actually have technical competence, right? And have that background, you know. You have to make sure that you comply with all the obligations for tax practice, that's gonna be key. Uh, you know, you do not unduly delay or impede the taxing authority. You provide information with taxpayer approval on a timely basis, unless there is a good faith belief the information is privileged. And that gets into the interesting long discussion, which they don't really go into, of what if the client doesn't want to provide the data, uh, those cases can become where you've got to kind of resign out of the system, right? We don't have a good option there. Because we can't mislead the IRS. We also can't disclose without client permission. So maybe, you know, I got to get out of here. So you always have to have that option in this engagement. Also remind you that if you get the merest hint of a potential criminal issue involving what the client's done, or it could potentially be seen as criminal, or the IRS seems to be treating it as criminal because somebody from CID shows up, yeah, you, you want to recommend strongly they go get this re legal counsel and you want to pull out a further representation at that point. And also, once the taxing authority is done and proposed adjustments are provided, that you need to go over those adjustments with the taxpayer and explain, essentially, how this works, You know what we're going to be doing, how this works and all of those issues for representation. Finally, the AICPA is asking for comments on potential tax practice quality control issues. Now, this is interesting because the AICPA did try to add a provision to the SSTSs. I guess at this point, it was about 17 years ago because it was coming up just as I started doing continuing education courses for Lynn, under, you know, with Lynn Nichols. And I know one of the courses I got assigned early on was a course he had developed uh, that was going to go over this tax practice quality control standard that we were going to have to, you know, we were going to have to effectively comply with. Now that never got adopted, but now we're revisiting it again and the AICPA explains, and this is totally separate. This is separate from the proposed SSTSs that now could come into effect. This would have to take a whole nother exposure draft and another discussion you know, and then be and with a with the comment period, et cetera, proposed language, none of which we have in here. But they are saying that the IRS is again talking about going back and regulating or getting authority to regulate tax practice uh, more seriously, that in order to maintain self-regulation, we might need to have some sort of quality control standard or have it imposed on us by the service. So they just have some questions here. 
you know, about this saying, you know, if you're going to comment on this area, they want to know, they want you to answer essentially four major questions. How do you define quality management in tax and be as specific as possible what a quality practice should be doing in tax? What role do you think the AICPA should undertake regarding quality management and tax? And remember, AICPA rules technically only apply to AICPA members. However, a lot of states follow the AICPA rules and you have to follow those. So wouldn't necessarily be that AICPA rules are only going to be AICPA members. And number three was to, prefer, to preserve the ability to self-regulate. Do you believe the AICPA should consider quality management and tax for potential inclusions in future standards? If no, how should quality management be addressed and provide your reasoning? And finally, how do you currently approach and ensure adherence to quality management within your tax function? What challenges do you experience and what type of application material would be helpful? Again, not anywhere obvious that they're actually going to release. Again, the last time they tried to talk about this, uh, they basically backed away from it. But 17 years apparently now, they're considering maybe coming back again. So be aware of that. Next up, we have the AICPA Tax Executive Committee comment letter. An urgent request for immediate guidance regarding new international reporting requirements schedules K2 and K3 for tax year 2021. This was issued on August the 31st. As you're aware, we had to file good old K2 and K3 last year. And there was a lot of angst, a lot of confusion, a lot of issues about it. Well, the AICPA has written to the IRS and they have talked about guidance in five broad areas and under the broader exceptions to Schedule K2 and K3, they have three specific areas they're recommending that we do that. So let's talk about what their recommendations are to the IRS. First thing is they, they are recommending that we add a broader exceptions. And what they're looking for here is th this problem of what's relevant. You know, is the data relevant to the partners? And what they'd like to say that the IRS should provide comprehensive exemptions from filing uh, that will deal in any case where it could be demonstrated clearly, or the part, or at least we have no idea that the item is relevant to the partner, right? Because we have various things we've got there. We have very special rules they note in this for things like when you have to include the 5471 information, right? All of these issues that deal with relevance. They, they would say it should be judged on a facts and circumstances situation. If the partnership reasonably believes this is not relevant for any of their partners and no partners asking for the data, then the partnership should be allowed on good faith to not prepare that part. The AICB points out that the K2 and K3s have a lot of sections. And it's not a minor thing to fill out, especially if you're trying to fill out every section because you get scared and decide that, you know, I don't know what's relevant or not here. So we're just going to fill everything out that might be. Uh, they also here talk about the problem. Many of the sections, and they're talking about specifically parts 2, 3, 4, 9, 10, uh, you know, in those, and the PAR only parts, these depend primarily on attributes of a partner. Let's take the information regarding, in this case, the foreign tax credit and income, income U.S. source, foreign source. As you should be aware, you, we, we know there's an exception here, right? If, if all the partners only have under $600 of, let's say they're married, let's say they're even not married, so let's go $300 of credible foreign taxes, they all come from brokerage accounts. 
we essentially can skip providing most, most or all of that data because it's not relevant. But the problem is I got to know information about every partner. Now we'll talk about an exception that applied this year, which AICPA will get to. But ignoring the FAQ 15 exception that came out in February and technically says it only applied for 21, uh, you essentially, you know, if all the partners didn't tell you that they're all below the $300 level, they're all below the $600 level, you had to assume they needed the data unless you knew for sure. And of course, if you have a bunch of partnerships that own an interest in your partnership and they have partners that are partnerships, and this goes down about seven, eight, nine tiers, which happens sometimes, it may be very difficult to get to indirect partners. And so they're kind of saying, you know, the ICPA's recommendation is, why don't we just go back to the basic structure here that if a partner needs that data that relates to their special attributes, the burden's on them to inform the partnership that they need this data. The burden's not on the partnership to provide this data to everybody. We'll see how far they get with that because I really think the people at the IRS want it provided to everybody to flag them about this so they could raise it and look at the issues. Uh, we'll see what we get, but that's there. Also, a key issue here and something I think is important, and this is something I've been talking about whenever I uh, talked about this this year. Oh, I know what I did. I forgot to skip the general presumption. Uh, this is what I should have done, so let's talk about this. This is also part of the assumption. But again, the IRS said the general presumption says that unless you know that something is not relevant for any partner, right, unless you know something isn't needed. So you have to presume, if not told, that this stuff is necessary for the partner. So it's kind of related to the attribute problems, right? I don't know if a partner is a foreign partner, well, the general rule that applied for all of this was you had to assume data was needed by your partners unless it was absolutely clear that it wasn't needed by any of them. And even then, sometimes relevance wasn't. Still, some of the sections in the detailed instructions would still suggest you had to fill the stuff out. So it, it was a problem. So they're asking us to remove the general presumption. Again, get it back to if a partner needs this, they'll ask for it. Also, we're being asked to permanently extend the FAQ 15 exception. Now, the FAQ 15 exception said for this past year, 2021 returns, if in 2021 you had your direct partners in a domestic partnership were not foreign partnerships, corporations, individuals, estates, or trusts, so no, no foreign type of those. And again, in tax year 2021, you know, you had no foreign activity, including foreign taxes paid or accrued, or ownership of assets that generated, have generated, or may reasonably be expected to generate foreign income. And in tax year 2020, the prior year, the partnership did not provide to its partners or shareholders, nor did the partner shareholders request information. That was essentially a number of foreign tax items. So you didn't have any foreign tax items that were reported on the prior K-1. And you have no knowledge that it, that any that the partners or shareholders are requesting such information for tax years 2021. First thing is the AICPA recommends that this may be made permanent. Right now, the FAQ only talks about the 2021 returns. So we don't know for 22 if this exception applies or if we're back to you have to assume it's relevant unless every partner tells you it's not, which is where we would stand technically if FAQ 15 disappeared and the instructions still say what they said before. 
And also, you know, they, they, they say that essentially, they also say that really that one about the 20, the prior year return had foreign data on it. They said you should clarify that it all, that only applies if that data was really needed to complete the returns. And if they prepared it, but it wasn't necessary to be prepared, then, you know, we should be able to still qualify for the exception. Okay. Now, AICPA also has, this is one that a number of larger investment partnerships had. The AICPA is asking for a consolidated Form 8082. Form 8082 is that Notice of Inconsistent Treatment or Administrative Adjustment Request. In essence, if you don't get a K-1 or don't get data from a partnership, you're supposed to file this notice. That was true under TEFRA. It's true under the current Bipartisan Budget Act audit rules because otherwise they can adjust you back to whatever the partnership reports. Now, the problem is currently, yes, you could do that. If you're an investment partnership, you might have invested in a bunch of other partnerships, and these partnerships either don't provide you with the K2, K3 information, or they provide it so late it's worthless. Like, you know, we're coming up on the 15th of September. You're still sitting here. You don't have the K3 data. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of like running out of time to provide that, to get that data to run through. Well, the problem is if you had 300 partnerships you invested in, each one that that had not provided you with the data, and some of these do, then in theory, I had to provide 380-82s. The IRS is, or said the ASCP is asking, uh, can, can we like, you know, have some sort of consolidated filing if the issues is partnerships that have this issue? Uh, also, the other thing the AICPA did, they, they want to simplify the foreign tax credit reporting. And in this case, the issue is, the AICPA is complaining about the requirement to have per country reporting for everything, for income, for taxes, for the whole mess there. And as I said, the ACP points out that's only really needed by the IRS if, if you have income coming from a country that is subject to the, you know, the bar on being able to claim the foreign tax credit on taxes paid to that country because they're under sanctions from the U.S. Uh, that's a very small number of countries and virtually nobody has that paid to those countries. The ISCPA is strongly suggesting that we be able to just report totals, so various sources, or the equivalent, because they point out this registered, you know, we talk about mutual funds can use the RIC code and simply provide that. Uh, you know, in essence, the only thing they say you really need to do is add a, que add a question, you know, did, did you have any foreign taxes paid to list the countries, right? In that area, check those boxes, and then you could say, well, you know, omit those from the totals you have here, provide us with that detail. Saying, you know, 99% of the partnerships have no taxes paid to those countries. It's generally worthless. And they point out you're allowing mutual funds to do this because you decided it was administratively crazy. They're saying it's just administratively crazy for these partnerships to be stuck giving detailed by country reporting when in fact it doesn't matter. Also, there are some cases where personal property sales have to be reported separately. Um, they're also asking that they that that be able to be summarized in that information. Now, will the IRS pay any attention to this letter? I don't know. You know, it's one of those things where maybe I, I suspect some of these they'll do. I'm expecting the FAQ 15 item to be extended, but they haven't told us yet they're going to do that. So in any event, we still have that. So keep an eye on it. But yeah. We'll see what comes up there. Finally, th this week, let's talk about a pair of letters. 
Uh, one issued on August 30th came from the AICPA Tax Executive Committee, and it was entitled Notice 2022-36 Penalty Relief for Certain Taxpayers Filing Returns for Taxable Years 2019 and 2020 and Request for Extended Deadline. And then the second was, our, was a letter authored by the president of the National Association of Enrolled Agents on behalf of that organization, Kathy Brown, EA, which was entitled Pandemic-Related Failure to File Penalty Relief. A little more restricted there, but the same difference. Both of these letters are asking for much the same thing. Okay? Let's talk about the AICPA letter first. Right, the AICPA does the appropriate things to all the IRS were perfectly pleased about you doing this. However, they point out, first thing they do, they, they, they do put the knife in a little by saying, yeah, we've been asking for this relief for two years. We're really glad you finally did it. And they actually gave a list of every time they wrote them asking for this. And, you know, the, these letters go all the way back to July of 2020 through, in essence, July of 2022. And there are a large number of such letters where they asked for such relief. So they, they did point that out because the IRS had always told them, as the commissioner, remember, famously at the National Conference on Federal Taxes back in 2020, told the AICPA no way were they going to get penalty relief because that would just allow cheaters to cheat. Uh, yeah, we got all those things. So th this is kind of the problem. But the AICPA said one of our problems here right now is 2019 and 2020 returns that are late filed get the penalties just totally d disappeared. But those returns must be filed by September 30 of 2020, here in 2022. That's the cutoff deadline. Now, for information returns, a little bit different times. Uh, AICPA says a couple things to note here about that deadline, about the deadline dates. Uh, first thing is that we're a little busy right now, right? I mean, we have the, the September 15th deadline for pass-through entities. We have the December 30th deadline for trusts. We have the October 15th individual deadline. The ACPA says a lot of taxpayers that will need assistance are not going to be able to find anybody able to help them to get this done. Or, you know, or if you're as a CPA going to help somebody get this done, you may end up putting at risk your clients getting their stuff timely filed this year. So th that's all kind of bad, right? We're going to accept that. That's a bad result. We don't like that. Um, also, they said, you know, when we're talking about foreign reporting or national reporting, some of the relief goes there. They say a lot of that gets complicated and taxpayers may be out of the country. So what the AICPA requests is that this deadline to have something filed be pushed back beyond the September 30 date. The AICPA suggests that that date should be the end of this year. They say, and they point out, they say extending the deadline relief will assist practitioners in maximizing the relief provided will bring more taxpayers into voluntary compliance and will save the IRS resources, saying, you know, guys, you really should do this. Uh, two days later, the NAEA letter was issued, and that covers much the same background. Uh, this It's a little more focused on the failure to file penalty, talks about the 19 and 20 returns. and But again, they point out that, you know, this deadline's coming up, right? So they, they, they said there are basically three distinct steps that some taxpayers may want to comply. But they have to learn they provided a significant discount to what many of them are just avoiding. They talk about the fact that taxpayers who are behind in filing returns, uh, you know, just figure I'll ignore the problem, maybe it'll go away because it's going to be a significant, it'll be a painful and expensive process. They don't want to do it. Secondly, they're going to have to gather information and other supporting documents, and that may be a little more fun. They got to complete and file the return. 
And as the NAEA letter says, each one of these may be challenging. Uh, they may not become aware of the program until awfully close to the September 30 deadline. And sometimes you're going to need to actually pull a transcript record and get a Form 8821 on file for a tax professional to get data from the IRS to fulfill the requirements for the forms. And because of all of that, they're saying, really, with the deadlines there, in order for these people to have a chance of getting representation, you need to push the deadline back. Now, the NAEA only allows for the deadline to be pushed back to November 30th. Uh, but in any event, either one of those would seem useful. Now, again, will the IRS grant relief? If they're still thinking that, you know, the, in essence, they may very well think that people that mean that meant to comply and simply were prevented by the COVID pandemic or not being able to get through the IRS, that they're probably close and that they can get everything done by September 30, especially now that this relief's on the table. And that by extending this, you would only help people who weren't planning to comply anyway. I could certainly see that mindset there, especially with statements the, commissioners made, the commissioner made back in 2020. I could see them not wanting to go there. However, the flip side of this is the main reason, remember, the IRS did this relief on those 2022-36 was because the IRS was being inundated with work. And both letters emphasized that this could save the IRS a lot of work and allow them to catch up if they could give time so there's breathing space so that CPAs, EAs, etc., who are doing right now compliance work could turn around and get these taxpayers into compliance once they finish the compliance work on the people they're filing for 21. So again, don't know if they'll pick this up, but just in case it's there. Again, this has been the current federal tax developments for the week of September the 6th, 2022. Current federal tax developments, as always, is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. You can write me, Ed Zollers, at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com if you have a quick question. Also, I do try to follow the Connect sites for some state societies I'm a member of. So I do follow in Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and take a look at Idaho's posting site. They don't use Connect, so they got a slightly different site, but same difference. So if you have some questions and post there, I may see it and be able to help with an answer there. And certainly the groups that, that read along there can be very useful for providing that data as well or information as well. So consider using those resources. We'll, we'll see what comes up next week. Uh, again, we're getting closer to the deadline next week. You'll be in the week for the first absolute deadline for partnerships and S corporations. So we want to make sure those things get filed. I'm sure we all have a couple of clients that have been sitting on their electronic filing authorizations for months and we got to start getting on them and saying, are you going to sign this thing? Because, you know, we really kind of need to get this filed by the 15th of September. So it'd be really nice if you could get it to me. So we'll see how that goes. But that'll be your fun for the next week. Uh, how much IRS will do? They really haven't done much. And the court cases have been kind of not, not terribly exciting either. So we'll see what kind of things happen the following week. But certainly the AICPA went and got a lot of letters out the door this week. So, you know, at least they, they were busy. So we'll see how things go. And we'll check in with you again next week here on current federal tax developments.